Father, thank you, Lord, for the chance we have to come here tonight and be in your presence. And you've given us your word, Father, so that by your word, we may understand better how we please you, knowing first what you've done for us, and then secondly, how we may respond in kind, in the right ways, to your grace. Thank you, Father, for a church that wants to know these things and live them out in testimony to you and to your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to Verse by Verse Fellowship. We're in chapter 7 of Matthew, so turn with me there if you haven't already done so. We're going to study through the beginning of this chapter. We've been studying through all of Matthew since we opened this church, and we're now in chapter 7. So let's see, it's been about seven months since we began meeting as a church. We're in chapter 7. Now, I didn't make that the plan, but, you know, do the math. We're going to be in the book for a little while. Uh, But that's all right, because there's a lot here, and we don't want to miss any of it. We've reached the third and final chapter in Jesus' first major sermon, as Matthew records it. This entire sermon, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, it's focused on one broad topic, on true righteousness. Beginning in chapter 5, Jesus taught us on the degree of righteousness required to enter into the kingdom. And his conclusion at the end of that chapter, in verse 48, was, we must be as perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. That is, if you want to go to heaven, you have to be perfect. And then, of course, we know from the gospel overall that only those who have a righteousness equal to God's can enter into his presence. And the only way you can have a a righteousness that is that perfect, that you can equal the glory of God, is if he assigns you his righteousness. And you see that come by your faith in Christ, that by faith in Christ you are credited with Jesus' righteousness. So that was chapter 5. Chapter 6, we studied how that kingdom-bound believer, the one who's placed their faith in Christ, can live out that righteousness here on earth, even as we await the kingdom that is promised. And his conclusion in chapter 6 was that we ought not live our life in a hypocritical way, trusting in this world's rewards. Instead, he says we should do all that we do, give, fast, pray, etc. We should do it to please God and to receive a heavenly reward. Keep our mind on the eternal. And now we're in chapter 7. And the theme remains, true righteousness. But now what Jesus begins to do is prepare his disciples for how righteousness works in a culture and in a world of unrighteousness. How will we live in the midst of so much ungodliness? And he's preparing us. He's preparing us for a spiritual war. A war between the forces of the enemy and soldiers of Christ, we could say. And like in any war, the enemy that we face is going to use a lot of different tactics to try to weaken and defeat his adversary. He's going to try to divide us as a body, not just this church body, but he's going to try to divide Christians against Christians. He's going to try to discourage us, and heaven knows he's got a lot of different ways to do that. In some cases, he'll send his own forces behind enemy lines, so to speak, infiltrating the church from within. Knowing all these things... Jesus then begins to prepare his disciples, and as we open in chapter 7, he prepares them with a command that is intended fundamentally to keep us together, to hold us together so that we will not be divided one against another. And we open there. Chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now we open with... I'm going to say the favorite Bible verse of every rebellious teenager and every Hollywood actor or politician who's been caught in some kind of public scandal. 
You know, they always come up with that same statement. They, they declare, the Bible says, do not judge, right? And of course, what they're hoping to do when they say that is silence all of their accusers. In fact, I read somewhere that, that there's been a poll done among Christians for the most known, most quoted Bible verse, and this one won the poll. This, this verse was actually number one. Of course, when somebody says to you, and you've, we've all heard this, right? We've all heard somebody quote this line out of context. Do not judge, the Bible says. When someone says that, what they really mean is, how dare you hold me accountable for my mistake? Right? But holding someone accountable for their mistake is not what the Bible means when it commands us not to judge. The misunderstanding that's come out of this is a classic example of what happens when you take a verse out of context and you divorce it from its intended meaning. Taking any verse out of context is pretext. That is to say, it's a pretext to making that verse say what we prefer rather than what it actually means. And that's why it's so important that you never do that. You never take an isolated verse out of the Bible and try to understand it apart from what it says around it. In fact, anyone who would take you to Matthew 7.1 and interpret it to mean that you can never have a license to judge someone else's sin, that's someone who is looking for the opportunity to get away with something. Isn't it? That's the card you play when you want to silence a critic to avoid having to face the reality of your mistakes. You can't judge me. The Bible says you can't judge me. All right, well, look, in reality, the Bible not only permits us to hold each other accountable for our mistakes, but it commands us to do that very thing in Scripture. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul says the church is to judge disputes between its members rather than having the members of the church take each other to court and ask the unbelieving world to judge between us. And Jesus says in Matthew 18 that believers must confront a sinning brother or sister so as to call that person to account. And we do that in the hope of encouraging them to be obedient to the Word of God, not in the intent of of crushing them, but we nevertheless have to do it. And elsewhere in the Scripture, Paul says that we must carefully judge or evaluate a man's character before we elevate that person into leadership. Over the church. In 1 John, we're told to judge the fruit of teachers uh, looking at their personal life and their character before we accept teaching from them so that we might know whether they are a good tree or a bad tree, and so on and so on. So, the life of the body, the life of the Christian body, includes many instances in which we must assess right and wrong, evaluate people's character, settle disputes, check qualifications, etc., etc. That's all judging in one form or another. So obviously when Jesus says here we are not to judge, he cannot have been prohibiting all forms of such accountability because if he had been intending that, it had been directly contradictory to other scripture. That can't be the case. And by the way, he's also not asking us to turn a blind eye to sin in the body of Christ. There's plenty of exhortation in scripture that would tell us that that's not his intent. So why don't we understand, let's understand what he did mean. Let's understand what he means when he says do not judge. First, go back to the context. What's the context of this chapter? It's a discussion of what is true righteousness. And more specifically, that righteousness cannot be obtained by following man-made standards. Like the Mishnah that the Pharisees wrote. You remember we've learned a little bit about the Mishnah from prior weeks. That that large book, if you will, of rules and regulations that the men of Israel in the times of the Pharisees and prior had invented... And they had invented it ostensibly because they said it would help people obey the law. But in reality, it just regulated life to the degree that it replaced the law. It became its own burden on the people. Countless additional rules of life that they were all required to keep. And none of those rules had even the slightest possibility of producing righteousness. 
in those who followed them. Because you cannot get there from here. Like the old adage, when you ask a farmer for directions, he says, oh, you can't get there from here. You literally cannot get to righteousness from here, from following rules. That's not how it's done. There is no way through law to become righteous, Paul says. You know, the nature of laws and rules, they only expose us when we're wrong. You know, that speed limit sign has no effect on you until you speed. Its only effect is to call you to account after the fact. Righteousness is found somewhere else other than law. The Pharisees, what they had actually done is they took their Mishnah, made it more important than God's word, used it to shackle the people and reign over them in their own power. And because no one could possibly keep it all anyway, they always had something on everyone at all times. And they sat in the seat of judgment. The Pharisees were in the seat of Moses in their day. That is to say, they took the place of judges and prosecutors in the legal system of Israel. You know, Israel was a a nation ruled by a religious law. So their religious leaders were also their judicial leaders. They were one in the same. They didn't have any separation there. So they were the ones, the Pharisees are the ones who would judge anyone who came before them accused of breaking the law or of breaking the Mishnah, the violation of their man-made rules. And more often than not, it was those man-made rules that got people into trouble, not the law itself. It's this overlap in Jewish culture between the rules of religious life and the law of civil life. It was this overlap in their case that produced a culture of judgment. A culture of judgment. The same men who would decide if you had committed a crime in Jewish society were also the ones who were judging whether you were pleasing to God. Can you imagine that? I mean, imagine if you went before a judge in a, in a court here in, in our city, and not only were they declaring whether you were innocent or guilty regarding some civil action, but they were also declaring whether you could go to heaven or not. That's the mindset of this culture. So naturally, people in Israel came to believe that their righteousness before God was measured against that set of man-made rules. Because that's how they saw it carried out. So if a Pharisee said you had violated the Mishnah's rule concerning some matter and you were to be punished, it also meant God was unhappy with you. God was displeased. And that gave everyone in that culture a license to judge one another in matters of righteousness and calling it God's judgment. Jesus says we are not to judge others in that way. And what he means specifically is we do not judge others' righteousness. We do not judge others' righteousness, and we certainly don't do it according to our own rules. That is, what we think righteousness should be. Let me set some ground rules or some basic truth that I hope you all understand, but if you don't understand it, it's hard to get to the point that Jesus is making. First ground rule, all believers in Jesus Christ have been credited with Christ's righteousness by our faith. And that means that your spirit is already counted righteous. Nevertheless, you have a sinful flesh. You have a sinful body. We've talked about this. And that sinful body influences our walk. It's the source of evil within us. So from day to day, each of us in the body of Christ will exhibit a varying degree of righteousness in our personal walk. Now, in my best days, I might approximate Christ's righteousness in some situation or in some manner of my, of my day. But on my worst days, you might wonder if I'm a Christian. And who else here might think that as well? Right? Who else can tell me the same thing is true in your life? Right? I always tell people, you catch me on the wrong day and you're going to wonder why I have any business being up here. Unfortunately. But regardless of whether I'm having a good day in that sense or a bad day in that sense, my righteousness before God 
is never in question. Did you know that? The Bible says my spirit is perfect. My salvation is complete by my faith alone. Nothing I have done or nothing I could ever do will separate me from the love of God, from the love of Christ. He died to cover all my sins with his precious blood. And friends, that's not just true for me. That's true for every single Christian who has ever lived. And I know we know this intellectually. I'm assuming the vast majority of us already knew this, right? But the temptation to judge each other's righteousness remains. Right? It remains. We take note, for example, of of someone's walk in a brief moment of time. A snapshot of their life comes before us in some instance. They're rude to us in a meeting. Uh, They cut us off on the freeway. (laughs) There's some moment of their life that we happen to just intersect with them on that moment. And based only on that moment, we size them up, right? Perhaps it's a weakness in in an area of life that we personally are strong in. We feel good about ourselves in that area of life, and they show weakness in that. Or maybe it's a mistake that we used to commit, but we've risen above that now. We conquered that one, right? And so when we run into those moments, you, you know, you have that temptation to feel just a little justified in looking down your nose at that person in their weakness judging them as somehow less righteous than we are, less pleasing to God in that respect, and therefore we have a leg up on them. And maybe that's the extent of it. Maybe it's just a little prideful moment in our heart and we move on. Still wrong, but if that's all we do with it, it's probably minimally damaging. But whenever we do this, whether we take a further step with it or not, every time we do this, we're forgetting something. We're forgetting the grace that God has given to us. Right? We're forgetting what we have in our deficits. We forget how much we've been forgiven. And we conveniently overlook how far we still have to go in addressing areas of our life that are not going so well. And in the worst case, we judge them like the Pharisees used to judge in Israel's day. That is, according to our own standards, according to our own expectations, rather than by the word of God. And anytime we do this kind of stuff, we damage the unity of the body. I mean, even if we don't say anything to the person, even if it never goes any further than our head, in our head, we've, we've put them a little distant from ourselves in that respect, right? We've put ourselves a little bit above them. And that's what the enemy wants. I mean, among other things, that's what he wants. He doesn't want us to see ourselves as equally sinners saved by grace. He wants to see us in some kind of pecking order so that we can start having the haves and the have-nots and we can start dividing each other in that respect. And... If you ever, you know, if you've ever thought of the good Christians and the bad Christians, you know, when I grew up, I grew up in a Catholic background, and that's not a Christian institution, uh, so I'm not making a comparison in that regard. But in some ways, it has a similar mindset to those who would judge in the Christian world. And you, you may have heard the term a bad Catholic or a good Catholic. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I don't know what the difference is, but the point is, they have this pecking order: good Catholics do these things, bad Catholics, you know, don't do these things, and it's completely, you know, nonsense. But when you bring the mindset into the Christian context, good Christians, bad Christians, what are we saying? I mean, even if we don't use those terms, what are we thinking? What we're saying is that some of us are closer to Christ than others. That's not true. That's not true, right? Those who are righteous by our standards and those who have fallen short, again, according to our standards, That's not the way God looks at us, because heaven forbid he ever did. Do you know where you would be in any kind of pecking order where God has that kind of an assignment of good and bad? None of us would make it. There you are. You're back to a works-based theology. We have a word for this in the church, right? Legalism. 
Legalism. You may not have thought of legalism in this specific sense, but legalism is ultimately about racking and stacking people based on arbitrary criteria that we think is important. When you promote a legalistic mindset in the body of Christ, number one, you deny grace. You just flat out deny it. You put grace aside and you say, yes, we were saved by grace, but forget about that for now. It's all about your works right now. That's denying grace. Secondly, we encourage pride and self-righteousness. And thirdly, we discourage the weak among us from trying, from pursuing Christ. Jesus says, do not judge one another in this way. Because frankly, the Lord does not need your help to bring someone to righteousness. He doesn't need it. The Lord has already given everyone who is a believer his spirit and the word of God. As Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. So Peter says that God's divine power has granted everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. So His power has granted us everything we need to arrive at godliness. His sanctification will come through, he says, a true knowledge of Christ, which is beginning with the Word of God. And moreover, He gave us a Spirit who works with the Word, and the Bible says, as a sword cutting, as it were, into us, exposing our faults to ourselves so that we would have to reconcile with him over those things. Now let me ask you, if the Spirit of God is working in the heart of a believer with the Word of God, and yet that is not enough for now to prompt their obedience to Christ, how much more do you think you can do? What what, what, what power do you have, or, or that I have? In other words, if that person dealing with Christ in their heart and in the Word, and yet they intent, their intent is to continue to disobey, well, you know what? What else are you going to do about that? Can you argue them into obedience? Will your judgments and advice and your, the guilt trip and the condemnation, do you think that's going to make the difference for them? Do you have better arguments than, than God does in their heart? You see the point? Now, I'm not saying we don't have a role to play in the lives of others. We'll get to that in a minute. But I want us to understand coming in that the temptation is to try to help God by pointing out someone's flaws, directing their behavior to our liking, making them feel a little uncomfortable when we don't prefer what they're doing in the thought that we can advance their sanctification. In the heart of all that is a judgment. And Christ said, we can't do that. I think most of us have probably been guilty of this at some time or another, or we've been the victim of it, of someone else's legalism. And even if their rules are biblical... It doesn't change the basic premise, which is we can't become their Holy Spirit. I think within marriages, spouses are very typically prone to this, right? To be each other's Holy Spirit. And there's a role for us in that regard. There's a role for accountability. But rules and our dissatisfaction over someone's breaking of rules doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't, self-evidently. When you start putting that kind of layer on top of grace so as to create what you think is an appearance of righteousness rather than actual righteousness. You get people distracted from following Christ. They start following you until they give up and get tired of it. That's not what we want to do in Scripture and in this church. When we encounter a Christian who drinks and we don't think drinking is good, or smokes and we think smoking is a sin, or dances, or has long hair, or has a tattoo, or God forbid they have all those things going on at the same time, right? 
That, that guy, that gal there definitely lost, right? They can't possibly get to heaven. When we start doing that, we're not just helping them, as we might say to ourselves. We're judging their righteousness. We're assessing their place before God. And if we do that and we conclude in our own minds that they could possibly be pleasing God in their current state, what we're also saying is we are. We're saying we are. I've never met the person who walks around telling us that other people are not pleasing God who isn't also simultaneously secretly pleased with where they stand in that regard. It's the natural state. I don't think anybody can honestly reconcile the two. I I don't think you can simultaneously hold everyone else as accountable to God and you somehow as... or or without also saying to yourself, I'm okay. We judge people as being less righteous than we are. And the worst of case, of course, is when we do it because we we like rules that they don't like. Not because of Scripture, not because of anything the Bible says, but because we actually just feel like these things should be part of what Christians do. It's hypocrisy, and that's where we're back to again in this sermon, right? Every time he's brought these things up, he's moved from what is true righteousness coming out of what is hypocrisy. And here, this is what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees liked to forget they were sinners. You know, later in the gospel, we'll come to the point where Jesus talks about two men praying. You may know this story, a Pharisee and a tax collector, right? And the prayer of the Pharisee is, in fact, he says the Pharisee prays to himself. He prays, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this man, a sinner. All right, that's their mindset. Forgetting we all needed God's grace. And we forget that we all struggle too. That's the flip side of this. We, we may acknowledge that we all needed grace, but we tend to forget that we all struggle. We all struggle at times to meet the demands of Scripture for living out our righteousness. And I'll tell you, friends, from personal experience, the last thing a struggling Christian needs to be burdened with is more rules. Especially useless rules. Man-made rules that never provide Righteousness That did not work out for the Jews under the Mishnah. It won't work for us. But there's one more aspect of judging that's problematic. Even beyond what we're doing to the other person when we do this. When we judge others, we actually impede our own walk of righteousness. Did you know that? You're actually hurting yourself in that regard. Because judging others inflames pride and it encourages self-righteousness and that's hypocrisy. So here's the irony of all this. While you're busy judging someone else, you're actually walking backward in your own sanctification in that sense. It's impossible to judge another person's righteousness without assuming a place of superiority over them, at least in this area of concern. And that's another thing I've noticed. People typically only judge others in areas where they're not prone to stumble themselves, right? So the one who doesn't drink or the one who doesn't smoke is quick to judge the one who drinks or smokes. Uh, The one who has no interest in tattoos looks down on anyone who dares to get one, and it just goes on and on that way. And the worst are the people who are reformed, right? The the reformed smokers are the worst when it comes to anti-smoking, right? Because they know the dangers, they would tell you. Well, fair enough, but that still doesn't make it wrong automatically. I mean, if it's not in the Bible, it's not in the Bible. And we have to be careful with that stuff. Whatever you find wrong in someone else's life will likely be the thing you don't struggle with Or you have strength to face it. And that's selective outrage. It's selective outrage. It's focusing on offenses that won't convict you, but can convict someone else. That's exactly what the Pharisees did, by the way. That selective outrage, though, also gives us a way because it's proof that we know we're judging someone else because we've selected something we can win on that we can stand on, right? Because frankly, if we were truly interested in serving the cause of righteousness, if that was really our motivation, then what would we do? Wouldn't we focus on all sin? We wouldn't be selective, for one thing. Secondly, where would we start? 
Isn't there enough material right here to get it going, right? And by the way, you'll know when someone's heart is not directed toward this cause in a genuine way if you point out their own weaknesses. Point out a weakness to someone who's judging you and see what they do. If they suddenly run back to Matthew 7, 1 and say, you shall not judge. Well, you've just found out that it's easier to be sanctimonious about someone else's disobedience than it is to address your own. You know, watch someone tell you how you should have raised your kids and then their kid runs away from home at 16 and suddenly they don't have any more advice to offer on kids, do they? Or someone who condemns Christians caught in adultery until someone finds pornography on their phone. That's how it works, right? Until our weakness is exposed, we feel like we got this superior place in which we can help everybody else with their problem. And then when our sin gets exposed, okay, well, we won't talk about that one anymore. Let's find a new one. Now, I'm being a bit hard on this because we all have a tendency to do this, and we've all seen this in other people, I know. It kills unity in the body. It abs- I have seen, in my own experience as an inert preacher, going around preaching in other churches, I have seen churches who were at a stage in their life as a church where they were in decline, and they were in decline because somewhere in their history, it's evident as you walked in, somewhere in their history, their culture went from an outward view of Christ and the world and, and the gospel and loving people through that to an inward view of self-critique and, and rules and legalism. And it just kills the life of the body. And the enemy knows that. That's what he's trying to do, right? In moments when you face your own disappointments, you need to be reminded that your righteousness comes from Christ. By your faith alone, you are perfect before Christ. Your righteousness is complete in Christ. You are assured the kingdom because of His grace. There's nothing more you can do to improve on that. Nothing. Well, what are you going to do to improve on perfection? You can't. So when the Father looks down on us from heaven, He sees Christ's perfection assigned to us. And nothing can make that better. That's the starting point you need to have in your mind as you think about your own imperfections or if someone chooses to judge you and bring them up to you. Start with that. I am perfect in Christ. Now, I'm not perfect, but I'm perfect in Christ. And then you can remember, everyone else in here is exactly the same. Everyone in here is exactly the same. No one in here is more acceptable to God than anyone else. Presuming we're all believers, there's no one in here more acceptable. Your faith... Uh, Your faults, rather, do not disqualify you, and their faults do not disqualify them. They will struggle. You will struggle. You see how it's all one level playing field? But, friends, that's why we come together, because together we can face those struggles and we can make progress by the power of the Spirit and by the counsel of His Word if we're working together on these things. Some days our walk with Christ will uh, be strong, Some of us will have great victories. Sometimes our life will reflect righteousness at virtually every turn. And we'll be on top of the world. And then there's going to be days that we're going to feel like David in the Psalms when he declared, Oh Lord, my sin is ever before me. I can't escape it, it would appear. None of us are going to get there before we get to heaven. We're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. But on a good day, we might get close and that's the goal. More good days than bad. Now, I mentioned earlier, there is a place in the body of Christ for us to hold each other accountable. There is a place for that. And along the way, fellow believers in the body play a role in helping us obey by teaching us, by encouraging us, in even exhorting us at times. And on rare occasions, we may have to judge a believer's behavior for the purpose of correcting it. Those moments come. But that's not judging 
their righteousness. That's not assessing their worth before God or the, whether they're worthy of our forgiveness or whether they're worthy of our acceptance. Those are not the questions we're addressing when we do those other things. Judging others in those ways does nothing to strengthen their struggle against sin. It just, it just puts them under our pressure. Those earlier things I mentioned, those are things designed with a heart to help, to minister to people. In verse 2, Jesus says, after having said, do not judge, he says, we will be judged by God according to the way we judge others in the church. Now, he says God uses our standard to judge us. Now, he's clearly not speaking about eternal judgment, and we know that. Because if it had been the case that he's saying when you stand, you know, when your decision of going in or out of heaven is finally made for you, it's going to be based on how you judge people. Now that would be a works-based gospel. That's not what he means. He's referring again to how he will respond to our failings while we live on this earth. Back to what we talked about under forgiveness again a couple weeks ago. If we're harsh in judging others in their performance of righteousness, what we're daring God to do is to judge us in a similar fashion here and now, on this earth. So, for example, do you demand perfection from other believers or else they get to hear about it? Well, you better be prepared to be perfect now before God or you might hear about it. Or are you unwilling to acknowledge someone's progress against uh, the sin in their life? Well, if you are, well, don't expect God to acknowledge your progress. Uh, Are you unsympathetic to their weaknesses? Well, don't look to God for sympathy. We're not talking about the eternal. We're talking about how he responds to his children here and now. And it makes some sense when you think about it. If there was a Christian who was so hard-hearted that they could not take into account others' weaknesses and minister to them, they had to judge everyone around them for what they failed at, that's a Christian that needs a little discipline from the Lord. They need to have their world turned upside down for a minute. They need God to sort of, metaphorically speaking, slap them around a little bit and say, you need to understand some things here, buddy. You don't have it quite right. I need to wake you up here. Well, what, what would God do to do that? Well, he would just use their same standard to measure against them. And as they start to feel the pressure of that, they might wake up. You see, it's a disciplinary step in the end. But what Jesus is saying is, if we become so hard-hearted that we put ourselves in the place of God, judging someone else's righteousness while ignoring our own faults, then expect the Father in heaven to use our standard to judge us. It's not that his grace has failed no more than he failed them. It's just that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And if you honestly think that you're helping someone obey through your harsh judgment, then how could you complain if God uses your method to help you? Of course, that's not what we want. Because it's not how people get better, which is why Christ is saying we should not do it. So if we see a fellow believer stumbling in some area of life and we judge them, we decide that they are unrighteous, unworthy of fellowship or whatever, uh, maybe even we go so far as to share our opinion with them. You know, we communicate to them our displeasure. We make sure they feel unapproved, shamed, rejected, and so on. And then you go home and you drop to your knees and you say to the Father in heaven, would you mind overlooking my stumbles today? Which is what Jesus is talking about here. You're failing three ways. First, you're failing the person that you're judging because you're discouraging them. You're not helping them obey. Number two, you're failing yourself because you're cultivating in yourself a heart of self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And that's not helping your judgment either before Christ when all is said and done. And thirdly, you're failing Christ because you're trampling his grace by denying its power to redeem and to sanctify. So... You're strike three there. 
In verses 3 and 5, Jesus makes his point using one of the best-known illustrations I think we have in the Bible. I think everybody's heard this. Verse 3, he says, Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, we've heard this, right? But it is fun to imagine it for just a minute. He describes a person carefully working to remove the smallest speck of sawdust in a person, a friend's eye. And that speck is so small that even the person himself is barely noticing it. You know, it it, it takes careful work to get it out. Now I want you to imagine that the person who's doing that work has this gigantic log projecting out of their face in such a way that it not only blinds them, but, you know, everyone's, they're kind of working around. It's in the way. I mean, it's intentionally meant to be hyperbolic and, and humorous, but it's so it can make such a dramatic point, right? It, it's a, both an obvious point, and in another way, it's a subtle point. In the obvious sense, it just makes fun of the man's hypocrisy. right? He thinks he can help his brother, even though he's ignoring a bigger problem in his own life at the same time. right? That's how God sees us, by the way. When we judge someone else in the way Jesus is speaking here, when we judge their weaknesses while we make excuses or overlook our own sin, God sees us as a log trying to maneuver to get to the point where we can help that person over there. That's how he perceives us. That's the way the Pharisees operated. You know, they were experts in everybody else's sin, and they acknowledged none of their own. We don't want to be like that. If that kind of hypocrisy were allowed in the church, you know what you end up with? Kind of like what I was talking about a while ago with some of these other places I've been. You end up with another generation of Pharisees running the church, and you you have a culture of ungodly, unholy men and women who portray themselves as gatekeepers to God, and you end up with a complete distortion of grace. It's a violation of everything Christ is teaching in this sermon. But there's a subtle aspect of this illustration, too, I don't want to overlook. He's making a comparison between these two men because the speck and the log are both made of the same material. They're both wood in this analogy. So in other words, these two men were in exactly the same predicament. Neither could truly solve the other's problem because they're both victims of the same disease, if you will. They just have one to a greater degree than the other, but it's all the same problem. And that's our case, too. You know, we all have sin, and we all have the same blind spots. Um, Well, not the same blind spots, but we all have blind spots. That is, things in our life that we haven't really reconciled with God over. None of us, then, are experts in how to live righteously. None of us. If you will forget everything else I said, remember that. No one is an expert in here in righteousness because you're not righteous. Why would you give advice on being righteous when you're not righteous? Who takes advice from people who don't know what they're talking about? We should all understand that, right? So while we're all called to hold each other accountable for sin, that's not the same thing as judging others' righteousness because none of us know the, the, how to get there apart from Christ. Now, as a leader in the church, for example, I have an obligation to exhort you to obey Christ, right? So at times I may have to assess the right or wrong of what you're doing or what's going on in the church, and that's part of my job. But I am never called to judge another person's righteousness. I could never say that any believer in here is any less or more righteous than any other believer that is in here, or that anyone in here is any more worthy of God's approval than anyone else. That's an impossible thing for me to say, because in reality, we all commit so much sin, even the best of us, that if it were possible for us to pile up all our sins in front of us, we could not even count them all. Now, Christ has already 
covered them all. I'm not saying they're still in, in view with God, but I'm saying they're still happening. And if you can't count them, then the difference in sin between any two people I might pick in this room is a rounding error. Right? Who in here is really, you know the old adage about trying to throw a rock to hit the North Pole? You've heard that analogy perhaps. If we stood here today in San Antonio with rocks and you and I tried to hit the North Pole with the rock, one of us would throw it further than the other, but neither of us would get close. In that sense, if you're sitting at someone else, around someone else in the body and you're looking at their life and you're trying to inspect quality into it, by judging what you think they should address, you're working with the rounding errors. And you're not dealing with the heart of the issue. You all have wood in your eyes. And so do I. So why spend time judging another's worthiness before God? As the illustration says, why not spend time working on your own wood problem? That, that would be the better use of your time. So here's the recipe. Begin this way. Have you confessed your faith in Jesus as your Savior? If not, that's where you start. Then, secondly... As your faith has made you righteous, it has made you as righteous as Christ is in your position before God. You cannot improve on that. Now, the question goes to this, though. Have you sinned today? Well, if so, confess it to Christ, ask for his forgiveness, and you shall have it in the temporal sense, in the earthly sense. You already have it by faith in the eternal sense. On the other hand, do you think you have no sin today? Well, the Bible says you are a liar, which means you just sinned. So we put that one aside. Has anyone sinned against you? Well, then the Bible says Christ asks you to forgive them, knowing that he has already forgiven you for much more. Are you preoccupied by the failings of others around you? Are you tempted to point out their failings? Well, first, remember, it is the Spirit who convicts and teaches, not you. Secondly, it is the Lord who sanctifies and delivers them approved to God, not you. Lastly, that their failings are no greater than yours, and that your righteousness is no greater than theirs. So we are all equally righteous by our faith, and we are all equally sinful in our walk. It's just a matter of what your favorite sin is versus what my favorite sin is. That's it. That's all the different. We all have wood. Now, we can be helpful to one another in our common fight against sin, but here again, you do not help someone by inspecting righteousness into that person. Rather, Christ gives us the way... Notice in verse 5, if you want to try to help someone in their own walk of righteousness, he says in verse 5, if you're trying to do it by fixing the other person's sin while leaving your own sin unaddressed, that's hypocrisy. Taking advice on righteousness from a hypocritical sinner is like taking financial advice from someone who's in bankruptcy. It just doesn't make any sense. If, on the other hand, you are an expert, or so you think, in righteousness, in compelling others to obey, then spend that time on yourself. Turn all of that expertise inwardly and start working on yourself. Take full advantage of all that you can offer and use it on yourself. And the point here again is, if you can get yourself to the point where you model the righteousness you're asking everyone else to obtain, you actually put yourself in the position to help someone. You cannot inspect righteousness into someone else, but you can model it for someone else. He says, we can do for our fellow believers a service by taking a log out of our own eye. That's really the conclusion of this. The conclusion of his illustration is not, take a log out of your own eye to help yourself. His conclusion, if you notice, is take a log out of your own eye so you can see clearly to help someone else. Now, in the analogy, in the, in the illustration, taking a log out of your eye obviously makes you able to see better. In the way you are intended to apply it, he's not saying you'll become a better critic. That's often how someone might hear this. That's not what he's saying. 
What he's saying is that as you remove the sin of your own life, you become an inspiration to someone else, a guide, an example, a leader. You become the kind of person that inspires someone else to do what you did. That's how it works. No one follows a critic, but we naturally follow people who set good examples and encourage us to imitate them. That's how this works. So obey the voice of the Lord, allowing Him to strengthen you against sin, and then look at how that strength influences others around you. And then there's another aspect to this. If you are experienced in combating your own sin and reasonably successful in the pursuit of that, you not only improve your insight concerning those things, but you know what else comes with that? You grow more compassionate. And you have more patience and more empathy. And you understand that people fight battles and they lose on occasion because you'll have your own memory of what it took to get to where you are. Suddenly, you're a better counselor. You're a better friend. You know, it's funny how the people who are the most sanctimonious and judgmental are often the people who have the most issues because they have not learned how to deal with them such that they can help others. And then lastly, people will be more likely to take your counsel if they see in you someone who has gone the where they're going and has dealt with the things they're dealing with. When you move from critiquing, judging, to modeling, you also move from judging to loving. It's inevitable. Judges find fault. Friends lend a hand. And they love and they forgive. And the one who knows how much they've been forgiven by God is the one who will forgive the most. So let me summarize with three things. First, your righteousness before God is complete in Christ. You cannot be more acceptable to God than you are right now. You cannot be more righteous. You cannot be more loved. You cannot be more forgiven by God than you are right now. But that is not license for sin. Secondly, if that's true for you, that is, if by your faith in Christ you know you are righteous, then it is also true for every other believer you will ever meet, no matter how much they irritate you. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? No matter how much they rub you the wrong way, they are just as righteous, they are just as saved, loved, and forgiven as you are by the same faith that brought you to that place. They are no less accepted. They are no less destined to reign with Christ. And here's a thought for you. You're going to see them in the kingdom for an eternity. And you'll both be sinless by that point, but you'll both have memories. I'm serious. Scripture makes it clear that they will be, we will be known by people in the kingdom for who we were here. And as such, I always think to myself, you know, when I have to live with this person for an eternity, I'd rather have done my job here well enough that they don't mind seeing me in eternity because otherwise it's going to be really awkward for a long time. But more importantly, remember, nothing you can offer them, no rule, no critique, can improve on what God has already given them in their heart. That is, the Spirit and the Word. So that even as you may find fault with them, just remember, Christ died to pay for that sin too. Just as He did for you. And then lastly, if you want to help others live obediently to Christ, you can best do that by modeling righteousness in your own life. Don't judge their walk. Don't focus on their missteps. Judge yourself first. Work to restrain your own flesh. And as they see your good works, they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. And in time, that example will have its effect to encourage others to move forward. They'll start seeing you as a friend, not a judge, as a counselor, not a critic. And they'll respect you. F.B. Meyer once said that when we see a brother or sister in sin, there are three things we do not know. First, we don't know how hard he or she tried not to sin. 
And secondly, we do not know the power of the forces that assailed against them. And finally, we do not know what we would have done in the same circumstances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us if we've judged. Forgive us if we do judge. Help us to do better. And for those of us, Father, who have been judged and felt rejected and scorned and unworthy, I pray, Father, that in this place, at least, they will feel loved and accepted, that they will know that they are perfect in their faith, and that that perfection, Father, can never be taken away. And they will also know, Father, that you have asked of each of your children that we would glorify you through our obedience so that there be no license for sin, no excuses for our disobedience, but that our desire to obey would not come out of a fear of judgment or out of, out of some pressure that has been put on us through the peers we have around us, but rather, Father, it would come because in your love, in your kindness, you brought us to repentance. And that the body around us, Father, would echo that love and kindness and acceptance without giving license to us to continue, Lord. A balance that is difficult to find some days, but we just pray you'd help us each in that way. And as we encourage one another, as we walk together, Father, let us help each other because it's a tough road and we will have difficult days. Don't let us give up on ourselves and don't let us give up on each other. For there is something waiting at the end of this road, something great and eternal, and we don't want to miss out on even the least of what you have for those, Father, who love you. We know we're assured of being there by our faith. We just want to arrive, Father, with the the most pleasing testimony that we can. Thank you for a church that wants to help us get there, Father. Strengthen us so that we might do that mission. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.